we just want to encourage you, if you and just, I'll just say, as Jim said, if you haven't been baptized, we want to invite you into that. What a gift it is to be able to proclaim our allegiance to King Jesus. And that's as a church, we want to do that corporately, but we love to do it individually as well through the act of baptism. So let me pray, and then we're going to dive into God's word together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's powerful. We thank you, Father, for testimonies like Jim and Gloria's that they came to know you perhaps a younger age, but even last year, just moving forward in obedience. I love that because there's not a day that we live on this earth, Father, that we don't want to obey you. All that you do, all your ways, all that you are is right and true and good. And so every one of your commands is life-giving. It brings us into liberty and freedom when we are in obedience to you. And so we want that. We pray, Lord Jesus, as we turn our attention to your word in Isaiah now that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, be our instructor. We don't need to be taught by people. We need to be instructed by your spirit. And so we pray, Lord, I pray that your spirit would now use me to impart truth. We pray, Jesus, that you would turn our eyes to your word, that we would not just be, as Jim just told us, not just be hearers of it, but to be doers of it. So take your word, apply it into our lives today. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you've got your Bible, you can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. And we are beginning a series today in Isaiah. So if you've been away a bit for the summer and you're rejoining us now back in, in the fold again, we welcome you back. We're beginning a series in Isaiah that's going to go a good long while. So I'm going to give an introduction to the whole book of Isaiah today. That's my agenda. Uh, I love vacations at the beach. Anybody head to the beach this summer? Spend a little time there. I love it. It is, it is awesome. It is one of the, the times at the beach that we have. We got to go with actually both sides of our family this year, with my wife's side of the family, with my side of the family. You know, time on the beach, time watching our parents with our kids is just priceless. It's just the richest thing to watch them build the sandcastles and fly the kites and do the boogie boards. and It's a blast. But do you know what I don't love? I don't love packing to go to the beach with three young children because you have got to load in the minivan that I swore I'd never own <laughs> the diapers and all the beach toys and the umbrellas and six changes of clothes per day because Lord knows they can't run around with sandy clothes all over the place, right? And the sunscreen and the snacks for the car and you've got to load it all in there and it takes forever and I feel like I need a vacation just from the loading process. Here is my fear. Isaiah is a great trip to the beach. It is rich. It is full. And my prayer is that today's sermon would not feel like just loading the car to go to the beach. Because we've got to cover some historical background. We've got to cover some understanding of what prophecy is in the Bible and why it's valuable to study. And we've got to hit a few very major key themes in the book of Isaiah so that we can be prepared then to work our way systematically through the book and understand actually what is going on and not be too confused. If you've read Isaiah before or read any of the biblical prophets, you know that they speak in language that can be confusing at times. They use a lot of symbolism, a lot of metaphor, a lot of figures of speech. At times they're referring to historical events that you're thinking, what on earth? I have no idea what they're talking about. And so as you know, it can be confusing. Today, our job is to set the stage for our study of the book of Isaiah. And I, I hope and I pray. I always think that the loading of the van is just miserable, but what is a lot of fun is the road trip down to the beach. 
because you know, you're playing road trip games and you're stopping for good food on the way and having a blast. And so you're not at the beach yet, but you're on your way there and you, that sense of anticipation for the beach is growing. And uh, my hope is today we're on the road trip more than we're packing in the garage. Fair enough? Awesome, all right, so let's do it. Let's kind of jump in. So I wanna ask, I wanna just do three things today. The first thing I wanna do is answer the question, why study biblical prophecy, right? So if you're familiar with the Bible, you know there are different, what we call genres of scripture, right? So there are different places where there are, there are letters in the New Testament that Paul writes to churches that he or others have founded and he's addressing issues going on in those churches. There are the gospels where we see the life of Jesus and you know, it's essentially a historical account of what Jesus did, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there are many genres. One of the genres in the Bible is prophecy. And those are books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. There are 13 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, And we studied Daniel not too long ago. That's a prophetic book. And so prophetic books have kind of a unique flavor to them. Let me tell you what Martin Luther said about prophecy and how confusing it can be. This is Martin Luther, one of the greatest theologians in church history. He says, the prophets, they have an odd way of talking like people who instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of what they are getting at. So if that's Martin Luther, we may be in trouble. All right, so why study a book like Isaiah? Why study a book like Isaiah? I want to give you four reasons. You see them up there on the screen. Number one, it tests our humility, or we might say it tests the condition of our heart. When I was in high school, I had a a good friend, Scott Giffen. He's a close friend. We used to hang out all the time. And he got a job with the city testing the pH levels or the the acidity levels and basic levels, the pH levels of pools locally, right? And so he would run around and occasionally I would join him because it was a real power trip to be 18 year olds and be able to have the possibility of threatening to shut down an apartment pool. That felt awesome to us. I don't know why. And so we drive, I had no authority. I, I, I wanted him to have a badge, you know, like pool inspector. That felt like an important deal. And so he would drive around and he would take his, he would take his kit and he would dip it in the water. And he'd, if you have a home pool, you know that you have to do this, right? And so you're checking the levels of the pool. And so as he would check them, the thing that was always interesting is no matter what you did, like if you dumped a bunch of chlorine in the pool right before he got there to try and trick him into believing that the pool was in good shape, it didn't work, right? When you put those chemicals in the pool, the truth of the pool is revealed, whether you want it to be or not, whether you want it to be or not. Isaiah, biblical prophets like Isaiah they kind of do the same thing for us that my friend Scott's chemicals did with the pool. By the way, watch out for apartment pools. Just gonna give you a warning about that. <laughs> Health club's okay, apartment pools not so much. So we would go around, we'd test these pools and what was always unveiled was the, the nature of the pool, what was actually going on inside the pool. And Isaiah has a way of doing the same thing for us. It has a way of unveiling to our to us, whether our hearts are hard or whether they're humble. And there's really no in-between. As we study the book of Isaiah, what you will find is that your heart will be revealed as being either a humble heart before the Lord or it will be revealed as being a hard heart before the Lord. And as I said, there really is no in-between. If you find yourself indifferent, perhaps angry at the conviction that the book intends to bring to us, if you find yourself apathetic, Yet the condition of your heart is being revealed. If you find yourself awed 
by the nature of a holy God and profoundly brought to your knees with an understanding of your need for that God to do a mighty work in your life, then your heart is revealed as humble. And that's exactly what God intends when we study the prophets. They have a way of bringing forward, more so than I think any other genre of scripture, the condition of our hearts. Number two, it helps us regain our prophetic voice. Now, when I say prophetic voice, right, that's a big churchy word. What I mean by that is this. I don't mean our ability to tell the future and predict things that may happen out in the future. That's not what I mean by a prophetic voice. What I mean, and what the Bible often means when it talks about a prophet speaking with a prophetic voice, is our willingness to declare what is wrong in our day and age. Prophets always had, essentially, Uh, two parts to what they did. One part of what the prophetic voice did was to say, this is what God says about what's going on in our time and in our context, and this is what he wants us to do about it. This is what is wrong with the way things are. That's part of what a prophet does. The other part of what prophets do is they declare God's better future. They say, this may be the way it is now, but it's not the way it will be because our God reigns and he is bringing a day of salvation to people from every nation. That's gonna be a big part of what Isaiah has to say to us. But Jeremiah says it, Ezekiel says it, it's through and through the prophets. And so as you look at them, there are always those two parts to a biblical prophet and his message. But because there is that part of the prophetic voice that involves speaking against what displeases God, we grow when we study the prophets and our ability to understand how to use a prophetic voice in our day and age, how to be people who speak what God delights in and what God doesn't delight in. And that's always hard and it always takes courage. It always takes immense courage. I'm always struck when I study the historical background behind any one of the biblical prophets, how immensely difficult it would have been for them to say the things that they said. We hear them now, a couple thousand years removed, and we think, oh, okay, like he's really going after them, man. I mean, he's telling them, he's giving them the what for, right? And telling them what needs to change. And Great, I mean, that's interesting to read, but we, if we can be transported back into the moment when Isaiah or Jeremiah or whichever the prophets were looking at was actually saying those things, we would have a very different perspective on how hard it would have been to say those things. It takes immense courage. And let me say this about a prophetic voice, about having a prophetic voice um, in our day and age. One, I want you to understand that every generation needs truth tellers. Do you know that? Every generation needs the church to be people who tell the truth about the way things are and don't just capitulate uh, the way things should be, the way God desires them to be, and don't just capitulate to the way things are. And too often, the church sells its prophetic voice in favor of having either political power or acceptance in the culture at large. The church compromises its prophetic voice far too often. But the culture does not need people to compromise the prophetic voice. They need people to take up their prophetic voice. Now, one of the things that tends to happen is whatever generation we live in, we tend to think it's the most in need of a prophetic voice of any generation ever. And the thing to remember is that every generation has always needed a prophetic voice spoken to it. Right? You may think the world is getting worse and worse and worse, and perhaps in some ways the world, our culture, perhaps in some ways it is. But recognize that Isaiah was a necessary prophetic voice in his day and age, right? 
and recognize that then after him, there were more prophetic voices that were needed and recognize that 50 years ago, there were prophetic voices that were needed. If you ever read, it's the value, by the way, of reading broadly and reading old books, right? Reading books by guys like Charles Spurgeon or John Owen and reading these old theologians like Jonathan Edwards and they're declaring how corrupt their cultures are. And you and I look at their cultures and we think if only we could have a culture like the one they're in and yet they seem to be railing against the things going on in their day and age. There has never been a lack of need for a prophetic voice. Now, two things you need to recognize always come with a prophetic voice, always a willingness to declare what is injustice. So to speak against injustices being done, those that are systemic, those that are corporate and large, that are systems of injustice that are operating in our cultural day and age. The prophet always speaks against systemic injustice, but they also, they also speak against unrighteousness, which means that you can't just rail against systemic injustices and not worry about personal holiness of the individual. But it also means that you can't just talk about how every individual is corrupt and not pursuing holiness and a relationship with God and not worry at all about people groups who are oppressed and disenfranchised and pushed to the borders and laws that are corrupt and brought into play to disenfranchise different groups of people. You can never have one or the other. You must have both if you're going to have a prophetic voice. Does that make sense, church? It's always a part of the prophetic voice. You'll see it in Isaiah. Third thing, it gives us a vision of God's planned future. Studying the prophets gives us a vision of God's planned future. <clears throat> I have a tradition on my birthday, which is every January, we have barbecue shipped up from my favorite barbecue place called Black's Barbecue, which is in Lockhart, Texas. I got you a picture of it right here. That's Black's. It's been owned by the same family for about 100 years. It is, in my opinion, for my money, the best barbecue that you can get in Texas, I absolutely adore Black's Barbecue. And the thing about getting Black shipped up, we'll go to the next one because you need to see this. Oh, man. I can, can you smell it now? Everybody just, just imagine it. It's, I wish I had scratch and sniff on the screen for you because it's so good. When that Black's Barbecue arrives at my house, right? And it's been freeze-dried and it's been wrapped up and, you know, they ship it on dry ice and, and um, you know, we take it out and they have the heating instructions, you preheat it, and it starts to permeate the house. And I just want it to be there forever. Like if someone could make a candle of that smell, I would burn it in my house 365 days a year. And my kids and my wife would hate me, but I don't care. Because it transports me back to that little hole in the wall shack in the middle of Lockhart, Texas with sawdust on the floor and the pickles and onions and the, mm, the side and you just get it. And you, you know, and you don't need sauce because it just falls off the bone. It's so good. I am transported by Black's Barbecue. So what does Black's Barbecue have in common with Isaiah and biblical prophets? <laughs> A lot. Because what Isaiah does and what the biblical prophets do and studying them do is they transport us out of our day and age into the coming kingdom of God. It's better than any barbecue smell in your home, okay? 
What Isaiah does is he gives you a vision of the day. He says, look, you live in a corrupt city now, but one day there's a city of righteousness that God is going to bring onto the earth, a new Jerusalem. And he's gonna fill it with people from every nation that are redeemed by his power. And they will worship him in his throne room. And the veil between God's glory and the people of earth will be removed. And you will see him. And you will delight in him. And you will worship him always, forever, for every day. And Isaiah and the prophets transport us to that place. They intend us to not just hear about it, but to see it with our eyes. To be able to look forward in future and say, yes, that's the day I'm living for. That's what the prophets do. You study the prophets because one of the things they do is they show you what it's going to be like one day. And don't you know that you need to know what it's gonna be like one day when this corrupt city that we live in is undone and renewed and the creation is remade and God dwells on earth with people. That day's coming and he will bring in a new city of righteousness. That's one of the themes of Isaiah that he's gonna give us again and again. The fourth reason we study biblical prophecy is so that we can marvel at God's fulfillment of some prophecies and grow in trust that he will fulfill all his prophetic promises. When you study Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, one of the things you find is that there are prophecies in those books that have been fulfilled both in Jesus and in other historical figures. And so when you read them and recognize they were written hundreds of years before those events came to pass, it instills in you a deep trust that God's word is true and trustworthy. It makes you believe that God's word is powerful because how could anyone predict that coming unless the spirit of God was on that person and caused them to declare something that there's no way they could know about happening in the future. And when we study the prophets, we see that. And the other thing it does then is remind us that all the other prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. And we wait eagerly for that day. And so it steeps us in confidence in God's word because often here's what the culture at large tries to tell us. The Bible is irrelevant The Bible is an ancient book written a long time ago that really has very little to say about our day and age. Perhaps a few good moral ideas that we could take, but most of them we want to leave behind because there's a lot of odd stuff in the Bible and stuff that you just can't trust and it was put together by men. But when you study the prophets, one of the things it does is it reminds you how reliable and how trustworthy God's word is. So those are four reasons why we study the prophets, but there's more. I mean, I could give you, I could sit here and I could list off 20 of them for you, but I just wanted to hit those four because I want you to understand the immense value of what we're gonna do now over the next year, that we're gonna spend about a year together in Isaiah with a few breaks here and there, but we're gonna spend the the majority of our time as a church family working our way through the book of Isaiah and seeing what God will say to us in it. And I believe it's going to enrich our view of God and it can transform the lives we lead if we will allow the message of Isaiah to to situate itself in our hearts. So here's the next thing I wanna do. I wanna give you a few historical data points that we need. Now this is dangerous because they gave me a clicker, okay? And I'm gonna try and click through. What I've done is create a timeline for you. Now some of you are history nerds like me and you can nerd out with me here for just a minute on this stuff. Some of you are like, I'm already bored, okay? (laughs) You haven't even put the timeline up, I don't care, all right? There are a few pieces of history that you need to have in order to understand, and my promise to you is, I have limited the number of historical data points on this timeline to just the things you need, all right? So stay with me, buckle up, 
get focused because we've got a few things that we need to get to understand. Isaiah had a context, right? And in order to understand what Isaiah is saying, you need to know what that context is. All right, we've not tested this with a room full of people, so let's see how it goes. Yes, it worked. All right, fantastic. So here's the first point in the timeline. The first thing I want you to see is that God's covenant with Abraham was made in about 2000 BC. Now a covenant is a promise. It's a relationship entered into in about, and these are rough numbers, by the way. In about 2000 BC, God made a covenant with Abraham. He chose Abraham to, in order to make a great nation from him. Now this is in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. And you may remember this if you've read through the book of Genesis, that God selects Abraham from all the people of the earth, not because Abraham is special or Abraham is uniquely righteous. He just chooses him and says, I in my sovereignty choose you and I'm going to make a great nation from you so that from that nation, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And here's why that's important. Because this idea that God selects a people and through Abraham, he created the nation of Israel. And in creating the nation of Israel, he didn't just create them so that he could have favor upon one group of people, but because he wanted to bless all the nations of the earth. That truth is absolutely fundamental to any right understanding of the message of the entire Bible. If you don't understand that God taps out an individual in order to create a nation, in order to bless all nations, you cannot understand the biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation. Secondly, Isaiah is going to return to this idea again and again that God's people have been uniquely blessed so that all the nations would be ushered into God's city of righteousness in a future that God has planned. So that's the first thing we need to understand. God makes a covenant with Abraham in 2000 BC. Second thing that happens in 1000 BC, about a thousand years later, remember BC counts down versus counting up like we do now, right? So in 1000 BC, God makes a covenant with David and that happens in 2 Samuel chapter seven. God's promise to David, if you remember, David is the second king of the nation of Israel and God makes a promise to David. He says, I will, David wants to build God a house. And he says, David, I don't want you to build me a house. I'm gonna have your son build me a house. I didn't ask you to do that. And, you know, kind of, it was sort of one of those, like, I appreciate your heart, but I don't want you to do that moments, right? And so God says to David, here's the promise I'm gonna make to you. I will always have one of your sons on the throne. You will have a descendant who will sit on the throne for all eternity, Now that's gonna become very important because Isaiah is gonna talk about the idea of this Davidic king. In Isaiah's day and time, there were things going on sociopolitically that were threatening the idea that David was going to have a descendant on the throne. And so the people are afraid. They're thinking this whole promise of God may not come true because it seems like a descendant of David is not gonna be on the throne for very much longer based upon what we're watching happen all around us. And Isaiah comes in and says that there is going to be a true and better king that's going to come into the earth who will be from the line of David, who will be the ultimate king, who will sit on the throne forever. You and I know him as who? As Jesus. So that promise to David is important in the book of Isaiah. Now, fast forward to 931 BC, and Israel becomes divided. Israel becomes the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom becomes called Judah. And there are kings in each one. If you've read through the book of First and Second Kings, this is what you're seeing. It's after now David, after Solomon, David's son, and now the kingdom divides. And the two parties, the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah, 
are not friends. They get in lots of skirmishes. They don't get along very well. There's lots of argument about where God is to be worshiped and sacrifices are to be offered. And there is essentially disdain between God's people, a split, right? So Isaiah is speaking not to the northern kingdom, but to the southern kingdom. So Isaiah speaks to Judah. Jerusalem, which is a city you've probably heard of, is the major city in the history of all of Israel. And Jerusalem belongs to Judah. It is in the southern kingdom. So you're going to see a lot about Jerusalem in the book of Isaiah. Next item. Ooh, that was smooth. Good job, guys. I like that. 745 B.C. So we're now fast forwarding kind of hundreds of years, 150-ish years, to the Assyrian threat. Now, Assyria becomes the dominant world power. There are multiple kings on the throne of Assyria throughout the book of Isaiah. So it starts with one king and it moves to another. There are actually three different kings during Isaiah's lifetime on the throne of Assyria. But the Assyrian threat becomes the major historical issue that is taking place during the time that Isaiah is prophesying. Assyria is growing in power. They are beginning to expand and conquer other nations all around them. And Israel and Judah are no exception to that reality. And so it is making them nervous. Now, the next thing that we see happen in 740 is Isaiah's ministry begins. Next week, we're actually not going to begin our study of Isaiah in chapter 1, but in chapter 6 of Isaiah. Because Isaiah chapter 6 is a description of God's call of Isaiah to his ministry, where God commissions Isaiah, so to speak. And there's this vision of God's holiness that Isaiah has as he's getting prepared to serve him as his prophet. And that happens in 740 B.C. when Isaiah's ministry begins. Now, five years later, 735, Israel and Syria, that's another neighbor of Israel, Israel and Syria, the northern kingdom, Israel and Syria, their buddy, they attack Judah, the southern kingdom. Now you might think, well, why? Well, there had been lots of little skirmishes. But with the Assyrian threat on the rise, Israel recognizes that they need to make an alliance with a number of countries around them to essentially try and block Assyria's advance. They are fearful that Assyria is going to come in and wipe them off the face of the planet. And because they're fearful, they start to gather all the other nations around them. Syria in particular, but they also get the Philistines. So Philistia, they get Edom, which is another nation. Essentially, all the nations that surround Judah now are in an alliance. And Judah, under King Ahaz, I think this is my next slide. Under King Ahaz, there is a decision that Judah must now make. So you've got essentially Israel and you've got Syria and they're saying, join us in our alliance Right? And you've got Assyria kind of off in the distance and it's that big cloud that's rising and you see the storm coming. And if you're Ahaz, the king of Judah, now you have to decide, do I go with the, Assyrian, uh, do I go with the Assyrians or do I go with Israel and Syria? Who do I side with? Isaiah, interestingly enough, is gonna say you shouldn't side with either of them. You should trust God. You don't need to make an alliance. Well, Israel and Syria, so Judah decides to go with, who do you think? Assyria. They, they, go, they basically tattle on their sibling and they go and they say, hey, uh, they're forming an alliance against you, Assyria. You need to come and do something about it and we'll be your buddies and we'll be on your side. Isaiah says, you shouldn't have done that. You've made an alliance with someone that you didn't meet, need to make an alliance with. Assyria sweeps down out of the north and they attack Israel and Syria as a result. Now, so this whole deal here of Ahaz making a deal with Assyria, if you're into sports, you can think of that as Kevin Durant signing with the Warriors, okay? That didn't land with many of you. All right, 
fantastic. How about this? You can think of it as Luke Skywalker making a deal with the empire because he's mad at Princess Leia. Is that better for some of you? More of you got that. That makes me sad. That makes my heart hurt a little bit, okay? Because you need to understand Kevin Durant could have signed with the Celtics. He could have stayed with the Thunder. That would have been trusting God, right? But he, he signs with the Warriors who are essentially the Assyria of our day and age in the NBA. 722 BC, Assyria conquers Israel. Israel does not exist anymore. They are wiped off the face of the planet. The Northern Kingdom is gone. The next thing that happens, we're nearing the end here, I promise. 701 BC, Assyria then, so now we're only 21 years removed. Assyria attacks Judah, but God delivers Hezekiah and Judah. Now we actually looked at this passage not too long ago. This story is told in 2 Kings. It's also told uh, in Isaiah. And so we're gonna encounter this story again in Isaiah where essentially Assyria comes to attack Judah. Now there's a new king on the throne, both of Assyria and of Judah, Hezekiah. Ahaz's son is now on the throne. So where Ahaz had made a deal with Assyria, Hezekiah comes in and says, I'm not gonna honor that deal anymore. I don't wanna be partnered with Assyria. And he makes a deal with Egypt, which is also foolishness. Because again, Isaiah is saying, don't make a deal with Egypt, trust God. He will deliver you. He is for you. Hezekiah doesn't listen. He makes a deal with Egypt. But God, in his mercy, delivers Hezekiah and Judah from the hand of Assyria. There's this whole story, which we will see, where the whole army of Assyria, camped outside Jerusalem, gets hit with a plague, and essentially has to retreat back home, and Judah is saved. So Israel doesn't exist anymore. Judah is saved in 701 B.C. But one thing that happens is that a relationship gets formed between Babylon... So if you've read your Bible, you've heard a lot about Babylon. It shows up in there from time to time. Babylon sends envoys to Hezekiah when he's sick. And they say, hey, we just, you know, we came, we heard you're sick. We just want to check on you, right? And, they, and Hezekiah is so flattered and so thinks this would, be a, this would be another good partnership to have here because Babylon and their kingdom, they're on the rise. This would be a good partnership to have. So he starts to make alliances with Babylon foolishly. Again, Isaiah is saying, don't make alliances with these foreign nations. You don't need to. God will watch over you, Hezekiah. And Isaiah says to Hezekiah, what you've done is going to result in judgment for the people of God. And 150 years later, after Isaiah is long dead and gone, what happens is Babylon is the new world power, 605, and in 536, a five, I should say 586. That was my bad handwriting. Sorry, guys. In 586, excuse me there, Judah is exiled to Babylon. So now Israel had been wiped off the face of the earth and now all the people of Judah are scattered and taken to Babylon in captivity. If you've read the book of Daniel, Daniel is living in Babylon under captivity in his day and age, right? Jeremiah is writing to the captives in Babylon. Now here's what you need to know. I think, do we have this on there? Um, no, I don't think we have it on there. So ignore that for a second. Uh-oh. Can I go back? Guys, can you take me back? I, don't, I thought I hit the back button. Nope, that's still forward. Well, here's what you need to know. The first 39 chapters, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are written to the, to, uh, the people living during Isaiah's lifetime. Right? So they are in Isaiah's lifetime when Assyria is the big threat. That's the first 39 chapters. Chapters 40 through 55 
40 through 55 are written to God's people who are in exile. Now, Isaiah is writing it 150 years before it happens. And he is saying to the people, you're gonna go into exile and here's my comfort to you. So in, in chapter 40 through 55, God is comforting his people who are now living in exile. The third part of the book, chapters 56 through 66, those last 10 chapters, are happening after the people have been brought back from exile. God has rescued his people from Babylon, brought them back, had the temple reestablished in Jerusalem, right? And the wall, city walls are built. If you read the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, that's the story of the, of the walls of Jerusalem being rebuilt. If you've read Ezra, that's the story of the temple being rebuilt and the law being reinstituted. So there's this whole historical happening of the people coming back from exile. So, 605, oh, thank you guys. You worked your way back. That's awesome. So Judah is exiled to Babylon in 586. In 539, Persia has now come on the scene as the new world power. And in 538, the exiles are returned. That's the whole history that I wanted to give you. All right, everybody good? We can totally, all right. If you, who nerded out with me on the history? Fantastic, awesome. You can start paying attention again now if you were not interested. So that's the history you need to know and that's how the book breaks down. Now, those are the key things that I wanted to give you. Now, last thing I wanna do today, last thing I wanna do today is I just wanna hit a few key themes in the book of Isaiah and I've touched on them already, but these are gonna be important and this is where I actually have you in Isaiah 6. So you waited all that time to look at Isaiah 6 and here we go. The first key idea for understanding the book of Isaiah is this. The root of all of our problems is a failure to understand the greatness of God. That's the major theme of the entire book of Isaiah. The root of all of our problems is a failure to understand how big and glorious God is. In Isaiah chapter six, verse one through three, just listen to this. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, 740 BC, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. The temple is not a small space. So when he says the train of his robe filled the temple, he's saying the mere end of his garment was so massive that it filled this entire space. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now the vision goes on and we're gonna look at it next week. But here's what I want you to understand is Isaiah's entire message and Isaiah's entire life center around the idea that God is great in majestic glory. And when we say that word glory, Eddie unpacked it for us last week and did a great job of helping us see it and explain it. One of the things you need to know is Isaiah is gonna be fixated upon the holiness of God. And the holiness of God is his absolute moral purity. That there is no darkness, no sin, nothing in there. Everything about God is completely, powerfully pure. And when we say the glory of God, what we are talking about is the visible manifestation to people of his holiness. Does that make sense, church? That we are saying he is perfectly holy in all of his ways. And when we say his glory is immense brightness and his glory is in all the earth, when we talk about that, what we're talking about is the manifestation of God's nature, his holiness, his moral purity being seen by people. The miracle 
of the text that Eddie taught us in last week is that in Jesus, the veil that existed between me, a sinner, and God's perfect holiness and glory was removed in Jesus so that I can gaze upon the glory of God because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus. If that is not astounding, then nothing is astounding. That's the message of Isaiah, that he's gonna fixate upon the holiness of God. So Isaiah receives that, and essentially, it's as if Isaiah is saying, look, if you could just understand how great God is, all of your problems would be resolved. So let's just think about that for a moment, right? Think about how that plays itself out. If I cheat on a test, it's because I don't believe that God is a righteous judge and that he controls my future. That's why I cheat. If I cheat on my spouse, it's because I don't believe that Jesus is my true and better spouse, able to fulfill all my needs and desires, using my earthly spouse in the process of that. If I'm overcome by lust, it's because I haven't seen the true beauty of God's moral purity displayed in his glory. If I'm overcome by loneliness, it's because I don't see that God's greatness is not just in his immensity, it's in his ability to stoop and draw near. If I'm overcome by greed, it's because I don't see the complete ownership of God over all the universe. If I'm overcome by fear, it's because I don't see how unending and relentless God's love is. If I'm overcome by fear of the other, of people who are not like me, of a different race or gender or different culture, if, I, if I'm overcome by anger or fear at those people, it's because I fail to see that God is so immense that one culture could never hold his glory. And so he delights to make people of all cultures and all races and all people groups because his glory is that immense. If we begin to glimpse the glory and the grandeur and the greatness of God as Isaiah did, all of our problems begin to be resolved. Do you see it? That's what Isaiah is after for us. Second thing, second theme, key idea. God purifies his people through judgment, but his final purpose is the triumph of his grace. We are going to hear a lot of chapters, a lot of chapters of God judging his people and saying, I am going to purify you through judgment. I am going to take away the dross. I'm going to take away the things in you that are impure and that do not please me. And my judgment will bring it about. He's gonna spend a good amount of time on that. But always, and throughout the entire book, the thing that we see is that his chief ambition is the triumph of his grace. The general movement of the book is from judgment at the beginning towards deliverance and salvation at the end. But we get these little cycles throughout the book where you'll get judgment, 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 and then a hint of salvation, a hint of a promise of a better day to come. And then we'll return to judgment and judgment and difficulty and purification. And then day of salvation will come. So we generally move from judgment to salvation, but we also get little cycles within the entire book of that same idea. So you need to be prepared for that because we're going to be rocked by the idea of God saying, this is what I bring my judgment down upon and I am holy and righteous to bring that judgment. No one else judges as I judge. The third thing is Jesus, the promised Davidic king, servant of the Lord and anointed preacher is the hope of the world. 
Isaiah 7 says it this way. Isaiah 7, verse 13 and 14. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Remember the David thing from the timeline. Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right there in chapter seven, we begin to get a sense of this promised Davidic king who will come and sit on the throne of David. And then fast forward, I'm only gonna give you just a little touch to Isaiah 61. And in Isaiah 61, this may sound familiar because Jesus quotes it in Luke chapter four. In Isaiah 61, verse one, we hear these words. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And Jesus comes and when he's in Luke chapter four, he opens up the scroll and he reads it and he says, these words are fulfilled in your very presence today. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I am the true Davidic king from Isaiah 7. I am the true suffering servant from Isaiah 53, which we're gonna see as we look through the book. And I am also the anointed preacher of Isaiah 61, who is able to declare good news to the captives because I am not just the king who sits on the throne of David. I am also the servant who has suffered and delivered you through my suffering. Therefore, I am the anointed preacher who proclaims good news. Jesus is all over Isaiah He is all over Isaiah, and it is so rich to see it. Isaiah is quoted more than any other prophet by the New Testament authors uh, brought out of the Old Testament and has more New Testament texts quoting Isaiah than any other book other than Psalms. So we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David, and we will see what he is up to throughout the book. So here's our conclusion. Can you see, I hope, I hope this felt more like the road trip than packing the car, friends. Can you see the life that can be lived if you get the message of Isaiah? It's a life of deep humility. It's a life of pure, unadulterated worship in the grandeur of God and not just playing church on Sunday morning. It's a life that cares about injustice and righteousness. It's a life filled with deep empathy and compassion. It's a life that longs for purity and holiness because you want more of God. And you know that Jesus has said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. It's a life of close attentiveness to the spirit of God and his work in your heart and in your mind and amongst your people. It's been my prayer, it will continue to be my prayer as we study the book of Isaiah, that he would steep us in these truths so that these kinds of lives would begin to mark us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you have seen fit to hundreds of years before you came and walked among us on the earth to declare that you would come and to point us to you in the book of Isaiah. We thank you for the vision, Father God, that you've given of your grandeur and splendor and holiness. I know that no human words can even begin to capture it, and least of all mine. And so I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would reveal the glory of the Father to us. Thank you that in you the veil is removed and that we can gaze upon the goodness of God because of your righteousness 
imparted to us. As we sing now to you, Lord, would you receive our praises? And as Isaiah says, let them not be from hearts that are far from you and just offered with empty lips, but let them be offered with hearts that desire to draw near to you and that love you and want you to be first and most in our affections. We pray it for the glory of the Father revealed in the Son, Jesus, and carried out by the work of the Spirit. Amen. Why don't you stand? Let's sing to close our time together.